This is Parsha Panorama, and this week's Parsha is Parsha Siestra. Once again, another really exciting Parsha ahead of us. It is the Parsha of Kabbalah Satora, the divine revelation on Har Sinai. And there are so many questions that we have to address, some so fundamental that we might have never even thought of them because, like often happens, we take so much of the history that we know for years for granted. We couldn't imagine history having unfolded any other way once we've known the story. And, you know, we had a similar concept last week about Shiraz Hayam, Parshas Bashalach. Could you imagine the story without Kriyas Yamsef? And we suggested a major alternative and, you know, the, the road that wasn't taken and why it really couldn't be taken. So we're going to address a very similar question in this week's Parsha Parsha Siestro. And before we do, let's start talking a little bit about the the global aspect of what Parsha Siestro is. We are, again, looking at the Parsha of Kabbalah Satora. This is the, perhaps the beginning of entering the covenant with Hashem. It starts off with the Aseris Adibros. Um, the Parsha doesn't start off with the Aseris Adibros, but we would perhaps say that the main part of the 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 covenant, I guess the main text, if you will, of the covenant is, is um, seems to be within the revelation of the Aseris Adibros, the the ten statements. Right, they're not really Ten Commandments, which is something that maybe we'll have to get back to later. Even though they're classically translated as commandments, Dibros does not mean commandments. Um, in fact, if you count the mitzvot that are in the Aseret Dibros, I think it comes out to fourteen. But um, there's there, there's really a lot to discuss in terms of the revelation of Har Sinai, and that's going to actually pour over into next week's parsha and Parshas Mishpatim, which is going to be a very heavy parsha for us to cover, as you'll see. But right now. This is the Parsha where we become Hashem's Am Segula. Everything that we've been working towards, creation all the way till here, all of history has been leading up to this exact moment. In fact, the, there's a Midrash, it's quoted in various Gemaras. I know it, um, I think from the first time I saw it, it was a Gemara in Avodazara. Uh, but the Gemara that states that when Hashem created the world in the six days of creation, we know that um, for the sixth day it was Yom Hashishi, as opposed to all the other days. There was no, there was no um, Hey Hayedia. There was no um, special the, right? It, it was just a fifth day, a fourth day. This was the sixth day. And what was the sixth day? What was so special about that? So the Gemara says that this is a reference to Vav, the sixth day of Sivan when the Torah was created. In other words, sorry, when the Torah was given. Because the world was created on condition. It was on probation the entire time until Klai Yisrael would accept the Torah. Otherwise, says the Gemara, Hashem would have returned the world back to Tohu Vavohu. The whole point of the world would have um, been for naught, and therefore, you know, the whole point was for the Torah. So everything we're working towards leads us here, and this is not only true on a um, on a, I guess, a metaphysical level, but the narrative of the Torah, as we've been painting it from uh, from you know from the panoramic view, right? So, well, we'll get to the panoramic view of Yisro, but of course, don't forget the larger map of the Torah. We'll come back to this, but again. We worked our way out of Mitzrayim through the Amsuf, and all for what? Why do we have to take this incredible roundabout way? And it's because we are becoming Hashem's people. And what's the point of, of being Hashem's people? So as we keep on saying, 
It's because when Hashem created the world, He did it with the intention of giving man the ultimate good. And when generation after generation failed, Hashem started small with one man, with Avraham Avinu, and his children, his progeny would become the nation. And of course, that nation would be the Bnei Israel. But we weren't simply ready when we walked out of Egypt. And we worked our way. You know, we had a, an, um, we have a Sphira Omer period. And this is the, you know, this corresponds, this partial corresponds to Shavuos. Right, so going back to the idea that we said last week, um, that Rabbi Satorsky from Torah anytime, he often quotes um, the Chakal Yitzchak, the Spinka Rebbe. He says that whenever you have a Kriya Torah that is featured on a Yom Tov, so whenever it's that Kriya Torah for the for the Parsha Shavua, so there has there's an energy of that holiday on that Shabbos. And not only that, but there's like a, almost like you call, I think here first, there's a, as a diaraisa, so to speak, that Minha Torah, this Shabbos is also, um, this Shabbos has a Bechina, has an element of Shavuos in it. So this is where we become Hashem, Hashem's Am Segula. Hashem's treasure nation is Mamleches Kwan and Vigay Kadosh. These are, these are psukim that come right out of this week's Parsha, the, the, that we become Hashem's Am Segula and his, his kingdom of priests. So very powerful Parsha. So we have a lot to discuss. We'll just go through the specific components of the parsha, and then we'll start raising some of the big questions. But before we do, we have to acknowledge our sponsors. Um, and not only have to, we get to. We are, we are, we are happy to acknowledge our sponsors, uh, making making the the podcast possible. So Yona and Connie Laster, thank you so much. And Yaakov and Yafalando, thank you so much for your sponsorship. Anyone else who wants to sponsor like they did, just reach out to me at thedatabase at gmail.com. That's the data, then base, B-E-I-S, at gmail.com. Okay, so now let's go through the sections of the Parsha. So I have four sections. One um, you can call it an elephant in the room, but that is Yisro himself, right? We, um, it's, it's not so clear, at least from the Mepharshim, um, what the chronology of the Parsha is. We take for granted um, just by going in order, and we assume that whatever the order is, that's presumably what the order should be. And in fact, that's what the Ramban says. Whenever you see a certain chronology presented in the Torah, unless it's absolutely impossible for that chronology to be true, we, um, um, so then we assume it is. Um, so here, in this case, um, the Ramban would assume that Yisro is mentioned right here because Yisro, um, right, Moshe Rabbeinu's father-in-law, um, is according to basic Pashup Shah, um, Yisro is, fa- is Moshe's father-in-law, and um, and he's mentioned here because this is when he joined, right? Uh, Rashi tells us he heard the he heard about the war with Amalek, he heard about various miracles that Hashem performed for the Bnei Israel, and then Yisro joined the fray right here. Now, there are some who say that, no, Yisro actually joined after Kabbalah Zatorah, right? That's Rashi. So we'll have to come back to, then, if that's true, why, in fact, does the Chumash record the story not in chronological order? And Ein Muktum Mumuchar Torah is not an answer, right? Because Ein Muktum Mumuchar just means that the Torah doesn't have to, or the Torah is not bound to chronological order, but that's not a justification for changing the order. You need a, you know, it's okay if, if, if the Torah's rules are such that it doesn't have to speak in chronological order, but since it mostly does, so then why in this case um, uh, do we not do that? So that's a question that we will have to answer. But anyway, Yisro joins. Yisro brings uh, Moshe's family. He gives Moshe counsel, right? Um, Yisro famously noticed that the conditions under which Moshe Rabbeinu was leading the Bnei Israel in terms of in terms of teaching them Torah and judging their cases, 
Yisro observed that it was um, quote-unquote unsustainable perhaps, and Moshe Rabbeinu heard him out. He, he um, consulted with Hashem, and Hashem ultimately had Moshe Rabbeinu institute the judges, the, the lower courts, who would judge the Bnei Israel. So that's all section one. Section two, we have all the preparations for Kabbalah Satora, of which there were many. They set boundaries, there was cleanliness, they had to spend days, um, a few days away from their spouses, um, that they couldn't, they couldn't um, have relations with their spouses, um, and there was like a whole pep talk, Moshe Bain is preparing them, he's saying this is it, we're, you know, we're, we're going in, you know, we're um, at least into, the, into Kabbalah Satora. And so there's a lot of preparation. There's a lot of hype. There's all there. Moshe Rabbeinu has speeches, among which, again, they set boundaries around the mountain and they set commands. No one cross, no one breach um, the boundary. If you touch the mountain, you're going to die. So they have a lot of that preparation. And they, they also they declare, Na'aseh, we're going to do whatever it is that Hashem tells us. This is as opposed to the more famous declaration of Na'aseh Nishma, which takes place in next week's Parsha, Parsha's Mishpatim, um, in Perak Chavdalad, um, Pasuk Zion, that's 24-7, go figure. On 24-7, that's next week's Parsha, where they say Na'aseh Nishma. But in this week's Parsha, we have all those preparations. So again, section number one, we meet Yisro. Section number two, we have the preparations for Kabbalah Satora, the Vayichan Shem Neged Ahar. Fine. Number three, we get to the actual Aseras Adibros. These are the, the, the ten statements. Some might refer to it as the Decalogue, um, which literally just also means like, you know, ten statements, ten speeches perhaps. Um, and we have, what we have to understand is what exactly these Aseras Adibros were, because... We, you know, as we mentioned before, the infamous um, description of them or, or label of them as the Ten Commandments is not quite accurate. So then what are they? Right? So because there, there are commandments in there, there certainly are commandments, but what is so special about these commandments? What makes these commandments different from the rest of the 613? Right? It happens to be that there was an old minhug in the times of the Gemara to recite the Aseris Adibros um, after davening, and this this uh, was disbanded because of heretical um, notion and suggestions that this is where the Torah is at, and the rest of the Torah is not divine, or something to that to that end. So, what so what in fact makes them different? Right? And there's a qu- whole question with the minhag: Do you stand up when you listen to the Asaras Debros? Is that appropriate? Maybe you should stand up for the entire Aliyah because then because then if you don't and you just stand up for the Asaras Debros, it makes uh, it gives off the impression that these particular mitzvahs are different, and they're and, and and you know in a certain respect are they different? Like aren't they different? And 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 then again. Isn't it all the Torah? Isn't are aren't all six thirteen mitzvahs part of Hashem's divine will, all given from God at Har Sinai? So we have to discuss that a little bit. So what's so special about the Asaris of Dibros? Or why are they so special? And are they allowed to be special? And number four, section number four, we have what I refer to as the epilogue to the decalogue. Right? Right after the Asaris of Dibros, Moshe Rabbeinu reassures the people, because the people are scared out of their wits. They're, they, they, they tell Moshe, we're going to die after hearing um, the Asaris of Dibros, after hearing God's voice, so to speak. And after seeing the, the laser light show at Har Sinai, they, 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 they are just freaked out. And the people say, we're going to die. Moshe Rabbeinu reassures them. The nature of his reassurance, we're going to have to come back to that. How exactly does Moshe reassure them? But he does somehow. And then they are issued three commandments. 
Three commandments, yes. Even though most of the commandments in Parshas Yisro take place in the Aserah Sedebros, there are three more commandments. One is that they are not allowed to create images, Elohei Chesaf, Elohei Zahav, gods of gold, gods of silver. Don't create uh, molten images, um, which um, is strange because doesn't this sound like the second of the Ten Commandments, quote-unquote? So we'll have to maybe address that a little bit. The other commandment is not to when you make a make an, a mizbeach of earth, but don't make it of stones that were hewn by metal implements. So don't um, so no no cut stones, only only you know only earth. So again, no images, just make a mizbeach. Make the make the mizbeach of of no hewn stones, just uncut earth. And finally, don't make steps going up to this mizbeach, but only make a ramp. And that is how the chumish ends this parsha. And then it goes into Elam Mishpatim next week. So we have to figure out what exactly is happening at the end of the parsha. Why did uh, why did uh, Moshe Rabbeinu and Akash Baruch Hu together? Why do they issue these three commands after the Asaris Debros? I put this section with Moshe Rabbeinu's reassurance to the people, and you'll see why. But basically, um, you know, we could have argued that that this whole section about the about the Mizbeach belongs in the Mishkan Parshios, which are coming up in a few weeks also. So why are we saying them here? So we'll have to get to that as well. Um, so let's, let, let's, let's, let's lay out our questions. First question is, when exactly did Yisro join Kla Yisrael? And if not here and now, then why is it recorded here and now? So that's one question. That's, that's a, a, an exclusively Yisro oriented question like the, the the person the character the the biblical hero and um and and um convert that was yisro so why is he um what, what's he doing here just yeah what, what's he doing here uh, basic question the other question is home again going back to the asaris debos what is the exact purpose and essence of the asaris debos why how and are they in fact different from the rest of the 613 mitzvos so we'll have to get to that also, again, that final set, what exactly is the story with the final set of three mitzvos that appear at the end of the Parsha after the Aserah Sedebros? And then the big question that I want to focus on today, and this is the question that I introduced um, at the beginning of this podcast, and that is the question pertaining to the divine revelation as we know it, the Parsha as we know it, the Parsha that we can't imagine in any other way, but we're going to try to do that right now. The Divine Revelation at Har Sinai. So the question is, what, um, why exactly was it necessary for Hashem to, so to speak, come out of the clouds, show Himself to the nation, have this moment at Har Sinai, and you know, go, go through with this Aserah Sudibros, this revelation? And you'll say, well, what do you mean, why? Why, why not? Like... Would be argue that it could have happened any other way. Well, they just received a bunch of commandments in Parsha's bow, for example, for the Korban Pesach. And Vayimino Bahashem of Moshe Avdo, they had an experience of Shiras Hayam, right? So it's not like this is the first time they're getting a semblance of what Hashem, is, Hashem in his involvement, Hashem in the act, Hashem, you know, in real life, quote unquote, what Hashem looks like. You know, we can never really know what Hashem looks like. We can never have a full likeness of Hashem. And even at the divine revelation at Har Sinai, we, never, we didn't have that. It might have been the greatest revelation we've ever had. But was it really necessary? There was a likeness of Hashem that they saw 
during Kresi Amsif. They all had spiritual prophetic ecstasy. They all were able to see the miracles take place in Egypt. And then the question is, why did we need this revelation? And let's grant probably what we would all viscerally assume we, we would probably, our gut would probably tell us instinctively that this divine revelation absolutely had to happen. How can you have us enter a covenant with Hashem and not have this divine revelation? So the question then is, you know, it seems like this, this generation was particularly lucky that they got to have a divine revelation of Hashem. And how convenient it is that they had the divine revelation. And you know who didn't have the divine revelation? We did not have the same divine revelation. So my question is, grant you that it was necessary to have this divine revelation, then why in fact does Hashem not show himself to us in the same way again? If it was necessary before, it sounds like it's just not necessary now. Is that true? Don't, don't, don't you think we can go for a nice divine revelation? Don't you think we can use one? Don't you think we would gain from something like that? I, I think I would. I think it would certainly help my Vodas Hashem if I would see God. You want to tell me that this generation had to see it, right? Because, you know, uh, it, coming from where they were coming from, where they were not really, quote-unquote, observants, they, they, you know, they, they, weren't, they, they, they weren't set and ready to go in their Vodas Hashem. And this, this set them in motion. Okay, well, could, couldn't we use a, a nice kick in the pants? Couldn't we use... You know, something to fire us up, to energize us, get us going. So why doesn't Hashem show Himself to us like this anymore? That's the question that I really want to tackle today. The other questions, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll answer them and we'll, you know, we'll, we'll give some explanation. But that's the question I really want to be bothering you and that's the question that I want you to focus on. So in terms of just Yisrael, why here and now? So... There's a lot to be said about the connection between Yisro and Kabbalah Satora in terms of the fact that, um, you know, Yisro, kind of like the way we read Rus on Shavuos, right? Rus has her own Kabbalah Satora story. Yisro has his Kabbalah Satora story. Even if Yisro didn't join right here where he's placed, like the Ramban says, but let's say it's like Rashi, that Yisro really joined after Kabbalah Satora. Nonetheless, the, the, the idea of connecting Yisro to this experience might uh, explain Yisro's relevance. Now you might say, okay, that's all fine and dandy, but then why not put Yisro after the the Sarasidibros scene? Now it could be a simple technical a balabatish answer to get you out of it. Might be, it might not be so balabatish, but the idea that the, all the mitzvahs that we're about to talk about from the Sarasidibros and on going into Mishpatim is all really one unit. And if it is all one unit then Yisra would have to be pushed off till after Kabbalah Satora by very far, and at that point it might not be as relevant for him to be there anymore. It's almost like we're losing the connection between Yisra and Kabbalah Satora. We kind of have to mention him now, otherwise it's going to be lost in all the mitzvahs, and then we're not going to get the message about the connection between Yisra and the Matan Torah. And the, the idea here that a, even a Gentile can connect to Kabbalah Satora if he decides to not be a Gentile anymore, you know, that's his choice, so, you know, it could be there's a lot to be said about that. 
Now, going with Rashi, coming from the other view, you can look at Yisro from what's mentioned after him or for Yisro what's mentioned before him, right? What's mentioned before Yisro, the Melchama Samalik. This, in fact, according to Rashi, is one of the things that Yisro heard about and, and, and decided to join the B'nai Israel. I believe um, the, the, one of those connections can be found there, the connection between Amalek and Yisro. And I will argue to you that there are many connections between Yisro and Amalek. For example, if you look in Parsha's Balak, when Bilam is, is um, declaiming um, his, his prophetic parables, um, his mashalim, so he issues a prophecy towards Amalek, and juxtaposed to that is a prophecy to Cani. And Cani is another name for Yisro. And so the, the, the Canaanites, um, who are really just descendants of Yisro, so there's that connection. The other connection is you look and say for Shmuel by the Mechamis Amalek. So we find again the descendants of Yisro who were not far away from them. And the Bnei Israel make sure to warn the descendants of Yisro to clear out because anyone in the area is going to get smashed because Amalek is about to get smashed. So um, there's a lot to be said about the connections between Amalek and Yisro. How Amalek, he heard and he kind of shrugged it off and he dared to challenge Hashem and his nation. Yisro said, I know I can't beat them. And if I can't beat them, I'm going to join them. And this was not just a prag, uh, you know, pragmatic decision by Yisro, but this was a theological decision by Yisro. Yisro had seen all of the idolatry of the world. He's seen every, every foreign god, and he says, I want to join this people. And so this is the godless of Yisro against the, the, the absolute shiftless and an evil of Amalek. So that, that would explain you know, Yisro. Okay, so how about the Sarsidibros? What's what's so special about them, right? It's uh, it is strange because are these ten statements packed with maybe fourteen mitzvos? What what makes them different? So maybe Lahavdil we can think of them as like a bill of rights to the Torah, right? The, you know the bill of rights aren't the only amendments in the uh, you know um, that the United States has. There are there there are more. But the Bill of Rights, you know, are, quote-unquote, the first ten. And I'm not saying that these are just the first ten mitzvos, but there's something to be said. Maybe, maybe there's a certain code. There, there are certain dictums that are hiding in the Aseris Adibros that somehow, you know, there's a reason why this makes the, the quote-unquote, the featured ten. And to a certain extent, Chazal basically say something to this effect. If you look in the Bamidbar Rabbah in Yud Gimel, also Rashi later in Mishpatim actually, in Chaf Dalid Yud Beis, he cites um, Rav Sadyagon, who explains that really the 613 mitzvot, all of them actually fall into one of the ten categories. What are, what are these ten categories? The Aseris Adibros. The Aseris Adibros are not just you know, 10 to 14 mitzvos, but they are, in fact, the blueprints. They are, they are 10 categories for all of the mitzvos that will follow. Any one mitzvah that you find can somehow fall into one of these. And, um, and so there's a lot written on this. So in a certain sense, this is like a summary of the Torah. And we know that there are also there, there are classically two categories of the Aserius Adibros, which we'll have to come back to this point. There's the Ben Adam Lamakam side, the Ben Adam Lachavero side. Um, in a similar vein, the Das Zakanim actually, in Sefer Devarim, in Yud Zayin Chaf, he talks about how the king's Sefer Torah, right? We know that the Melech had to have his own special Sefer Torah. The Das Zakanim has a very Mechudashdik 
pshat and what the Sefer Torah was. He says that it was a small amulet. The king wore a very small Sefer Torah. I don't know if he wore it as a necklace, but he had it with him always. How can you have such a small Sefer Torah? The answer, says the Dasikanim, was that inscribed in this Torah was none other than the Aserah Sedibros. That was, according to the Dasikanim, this was what the, what the Torah was that he wore, which tells us that the Torah, perhaps in short, the small version of the Torah is the Aserah Sedibros, though the, um, obviously it's not limited to that, but it could be summarized and wrapped up in perhaps those ten. Now, there, there's a Kliyakar out there that talks about how the Aserah Sedibros are really an expansion of the Sheva Mitzvah's Bnei Noach. Um, and, I mean, you have to see the Kliyakar and his differences between Parshas Yisra and Parshas Vashchanan. Vashchanan has more of a focus on, on Klal Yisrael as opposed to the Aserah Sedibros, which can be argued um, are more broad, maybe for um, theoretically being available to the entire world. Right, um, and um, this might connect also to Yisro, who was a Gentile, but he was able to jump on the bandwagon. And going back to the idea of the two categories of the Aserah Sedibros, so we said that there's, you know, the Benedom Makam and Benedom Machavero. What this leads us to is the possibility that really the Aserah Sedibros are really five um, principles, and just those principles translate differently, differently when you're looking at your, your peer versus when you're looking at your creator and maybe creators. Right, Rabbi David Foreman has a, has, a, has a whole approach. There's also a book called Patterns on Parchment written by Dr. Robert Appleson. And he has a whole, um, you know, his book is designed to combat the documentary hypothesis, the heretical um, suggestion that the Torah was written by multiple authors, um, human authors, and then spliced together. So he has a whole book on this topic, and he quotes an approach um, in the name of Rabbi Yehoshua Honigwax, who explains very similar to Rabbi Foreman, that really there are five shared principles between the Aserah Dibros. And basically, the idea is, just for example, um, the first commandment is Anochi Hashem, and on, on one side, and on the other side, you have um, you have Lo Sirtzach, don't murder. So what's the connection between these two? So Lo Sirtzach is the easier one. You can't, um, so, or let's say actually, if, if Anochi Hashem means you have to have a moon, you have to believe and respect the presence of Hashem. So for humans, you have to respect their existence as well, and therefore you cannot kill them. You can't, you can't kill them and wish them out of, you know, out of, out of existence. Now with Hashem, you can't actually kill Hashem. So what can you do? You could just disbelieve in God. If you just, if you make yourself not believe in God, so that could effectively, quote-unquote, in a certain respect, kill off Hashem. And so therefore, the first of the shared principles uh, between, you know, the Aserah Sedibros is to respect the existence of the other. And if you go through all the Asarasadibros, some of them are a little bit more challenging, but the, um, all of the aforementioned um, um, individuals who, who give pshai into the Asarasadibros, they all can make these connections of how one commandment on the right side on the first tablet corresponds to the command on the second tablet. And it ends up that there are five basic principles shared between them, and the entire Torah falls back onto these five to ten principles. Okay, so that's enough on the Aserah Sedibros. Um, we're going we're gonna to keep it going because we have, we have some more stuff to get to. I'm going to... So in terms of the final three mitzvahs in the Parsha, we'll come back to that. I want to go back to the bigger question about divine revelation. Here's the real question, okay? So the question is, again, 
why was the divine revelation necessary then? And grant you, if it was necessary, then why does such a thing not happen again? And I will just point out that I am differentiating right now between the Kabbalah Satora and the divine revelation. Because you might say, well, God doesn't need to do a divine revelation again because he gave us the Torah already. Duh. No, I, I won't accept that answer. And the reason why I won't accept that answer is that even though, even though um, Hashem gave us the Torah already, the first time he gave us the Torah, it did not have to be with a laser light show at Har Sinai. Hashem had already given us commandments. We had already seen miracles from Hashem. We've already witnessed Hashem. Hashem could have done this in a more discreet way. We could have gone to Har Sinai. Moshe Rabbeinu could have stood up on the mountain and made an announcement. The same way announcements were made by the Zikanim to issue the commands for Karban Pesach, that could have happened with this too. The, the, meaning the whole display of Kabbalah Satorah did not necessarily, I'm arguing, or maybe perhaps did not necessarily need to be in the form of this divine revelation. And you can have another divine revelation even without the Kabbalah Satorah. Haraya, the Kriyas Yamsuf. Kriyas Yamsuf did not have Kabbalah Satorah, but there was a divine revelation of God. And the, the entire display in Mitzrayim with all the Makos, that was a divine revelation of sorts, and there were no mitzvahs attached to that. So why doesn't Hashem show us these miracles anymore? Like, why not, why not give us the divine revelation? So here we get to a very, very important idea, which really connects us back to the panoramic view of, of the entire Torah, what we are doing here, what is the goal, why did we climb this mountain, so to speak, no pun intended, to get all the way to this point from where we were, from where we started as the Bnei Israel in Mitzrayim, just trying to somehow figure out how to become Hashem's people. So taking it back, we already, we already painted the picture, that panorama of Hashem creating the world. The whole goal was, for, was to, to, to bestow the ultimate good. In order to do that, man had to earn that, right? And part of that entailed free choice. And of course, mankind failed. Okay, fine. And then it led eventually to us. So... The point is that one thing that we mentioned last week, the whole reason why Hashem had to take us on a roundabout route, not take us straight into Eretz Yisrael, is that we had not really completely learned who Hashem was. We were in no position to succeed. If Hashem took us right into Israel, we would have just done an about-face. We would have gone right back to Egypt. It would have hit the 50th gate of Tumah. It would have been game over. And Hashem can't, Hashem can't change our nature, or He could, but the, a part of the rules of creation, you know, the, the rules that God follows, He's not going to change our nature, you know, especially not overnight. But God can intervene sometimes. And I'm going to argue that at this point in time, Hashem absolutely had to intervene. You'll notice a lot of interesting parallels between, or at least I noticed, I have a longer essay where I, where I, where I write about this, Connections between Harsinai and Gan Eden. Right? If you, if you look, Harsinai, they both, both places were locations where Hashem's revelation was felt. You, you couldn't deny Hashem's presence. Hashem was there. And these are very holy, sacred areas with holy, sacred rules. Right? When it came to Harsinai, no one's allowed to go up on the mountain. The emphasis is on the boundaries. No one can touch that mountain or they will die. It almost reminds us of no one can eat from the tree or they will die. What was interesting was that there was a, there was a suggestion in Gan Eden that you couldn't even touch the tree. Right? Hashem never said this, but Chava said this. 
And I think this is important, right? Because Hashem issued a command regarding Harsinai, no one can touch the mountain. Hashem did not issue such a decree in Gan Eden. The question is, why not? Why didn't Hashem tell Adam and Chava, you cannot touch the tree or you will die? Now, Chava had this understanding. Chava made a mistake and she thought this was true. But in fact, it wasn't the case. And wouldn't, have it, wouldn't it have been better if God had you know, just not allowed her to touch the tree? And then you know, they would have never made the mistake. So there's a big difference between Gan Eden and Harsinai, even though you know, they're, they're, there's the, they're similar in certain nature. Uh, just, just to give you another proof that they are similar in nature, the idea that Chazal tell us, there are many who write, that when we were at the Divine Revelation at Harsinai, we reached the level of Adam and Gan Eden. We went back to, to square one. We were finally back to where Adam was. How did we get back to where Adam was? I'm going to say that it's not just, there, there wasn't just magic. That, oh, look, you're back at the level of Adam Arishon. There, 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 there's a method to this. There's a, there's a spiritual science. And I'm going to lay out that spiritual science for you. The big difference between um, Gan Eden and Har Sinai is as follows. In Gan Eden, Hashem created us with a perfect balance of free choice. Part of the divine, part of, sorry, part of the design of creation is that there has to be free choice. We explained, based on the Ramchal, go back to the Bereshis Shir, in Bereshis Parshapanaram, but we said that part of the, the part of the design is that we have to have free choice, Other, okay, and that's because that's the only way we can earn it, and we need to earn the ultimate good, because if we don't earn it, it's going to be Nahama Diki Sufa, bread of embarrassment. We don't just want to hand out from God, we want to actually earn it. That entails perfect, fair, free choice. Now, what happened was, we had this perfect free choice, but once mankind had eaten from Gan Eden, what happened was, the Sahara entered him. It was no longer external to him, it was internal to him. And as a result, the once perfectly balanced free choice that we had was no longer balanced, but we were skewed towards the Sahara. And forevermore, from that point and on, we never actually had perfect, perfect, absolutely balanced free choice, good versus evil. In Gan Eden, it could have gone either way. It was completely 50-50 balance. But after that, we are skewed. Once having, you know, once having developed the taste of, of, of evil, having the taste of chait, we were skewed in that direction. So part of the design of Gan Eden was we had to have an absolutely fair free choice. And if God placed a boundary on the tree saying that we couldn't touch it, that would have been holding back our free choice a little bit too much. Putting a boundary around the tree would have been too much. The design needed perfect, fairly balanced free choice. There was going to be no command saying that you couldn't touch the tree. You can touch the tree, but you can't go any further than that. Fast forward a bunch of generations. Klal Yisrael at the scene of, at the scene of uh, Mitzrayim, the Shtufe Zima, the absolute spiritual impurity, having been stooped in Avodah how skewed we must have been by that point towards Avera. This doesn't mean that we're not accountable for our Averas, but it does mean that we can never really get started without enough divine revelation. We mentioned last week 
that even seeing the Makos wasn't enough for the Bnei Israel. Even seeing Shiraz Hayam, right, Kriyas Yamsuf, that was not enough for the Bnei Israel either. Of course it would have been game over if Hashem took us right into Eretz Yisrael. But leave that aside for now. The point is that we needed to regain our balance. We were off balance ever since Gan Eden. Off balance. And the only way to regain balance was through divine revelation. And by the way, this idea, you might be wondering, how could I, how could I suggest such a thing? Where am I pulling this out from? So the truth is, I theorized this on my own, but I later found this basically in the Ramchal. The Ramchal and Darach Hashem in section, in, in section Aleph, chapter 3, in clauses um, 5 through 8. So that's Aleph, Gimel, then in that section. So 1, 3, then He through Ches. He basically says this, that we had perfectly balanced Bechira until the He of the Eitz Hadas. Then our Bechira became skewed. And the, the, the Nefesh HaChayim in Aleph Vav points out, also in the Sif Sechayim in the same place, and in Derech Lechayim, that the Yetz Sahara entered us. And because of that, our... Our mission towards um, um, cleaving to Hashem and reaching that point of shlemus of perfection, became more challenging because we had developed the taste for chait. We no longer had a perfectly balanced, um, de, um, you know, um, a chance of free choice. And this is where we get to what what, what Moshe Rabbeinu has to reassure the Bnei Israel after. Right? There was this divine revelation. The Bnei Israel are freaking out. And listen to exactly what Moshe tells the people. Moshe tells the people something very strange. He says, sorry, the people complain, this is in Perakhaf Pasuk Tazayan, they say, Moshe, you got to speak to us, because if God speaks to us, we're going to die. Moshe's response, Pasuk Zion. Do not be afraid. Because in order to test you, has Hashem come and, and, and arrived. And in order that that His fear should be upon your face, as all that you do not sin. This is a very weird pasuk. Moshe Rabbeinu says, "Don't fear, because Hashem really just wanted to test you, so that your His fear will be on your face." so that you don't sin. Don't be afraid, because really God just wanted you to be afraid. What does that mean? Moshe Rabbeinu is saying, don't tremble in fear because you're afraid of the laser light show. Meaning, don't, don't freak out. But what you should have is a healthy Yiras Hashem. Not the freaking out Yiras Hashem, but the healthy Yiras Hashem, so that you don't sin. Hashem did this so that he can test you. What does that mean so that he can test you? Because if we are so skewed towards the eight Sahara, it's not a test. Are we going to follow God's word or not? That's not a test. Because Hashem knows what the answer is going to be, quote unquote. Meaning, not only Hashem, but humans could figure out that we're not going to obey Hashem. You know why? Because our, our, our Bechira has been so skewed. You want, Hashem wants to be able to test us. And in order for Hashem to test us, He has to equalize. He has to level and even out the playing field. And that's why Hashem had to reveal Himself to us in this most explicit way. And once He had done that and established a covenant through us forevermore, 
we would be able to regain that stability so that we can now make a choice and choose actively to not sin. And even though theoretically, you know, we all could really benefit from another divine revelation, the point is that what Kabbalah Sathura did for us was it regained that stability for us so that we would have a fighting chance, a fighting chance that ever since Gan Eden, it was very hard for us to have. But we start equaling and leveling the playing field when Hashem creates extra boundaries. Why does Hashem create extra boundaries at Kabbalah Satorah? Why are we so focused on listening to the Dirabanans and putting a siyag, a geder, on every halacha? The answer is because we've been really skewed to really enjoy the taste of chait. And because of that, we need extra boundaries. Those extra boundaries are not hindering our free choice, but now they are enabling our free choice. You know, this kind of reminds us of Paro. Hashem enabled Paro's free choice by, by uh, enabling him to, withhold, to withstand the Makos. Hashem is enabling our free choice by increasing the boundaries, the Rabbanon, by increasing the boundaries around Har Sinai, around the Torah. Something that maybe, yes, we would have benefited from in Gan Eden, but in Gan Eden we had a perfectly balanced Bechira. We, don't know, we no longer have that perfectly balanced Bechira. Hashem has to create revelations to work overtime to get us back to that point. Now, back in our world today, all we have is each other, we have the Torah, and we have the Durabanans, and we have to work really hard to, to maintain them. Now, going back just to those three myths at the very end of the Parsha, the thing that we, um, you know, that we um, glossed over before, the, the, three, the three mitzvahs at the end of the Torah are Moshe Rabbeinu's response to our fears. How can we possibly relate to Hashem after we've seen His divine presence? How can any human relate to God? Moshe Rabbeinu says, here's the way. Or, first of all, here's not the way. Don't start making idols. Because that would be a very bad way to hone in on the energy that you just witnessed, God. Don't make idols. But you know what you can do, says Moshe? You can make a mizbeach. Make a mizbeach, but make a mizbeach according to God's rules. It'll be made out of earth. Because you're going to relate to God on your human earthly level. And then... You will, you know, and make sure that it's not made from cut stones, and make sure um, there's no um, there's no stairs. It has to be a ramp so that your nakedness not appear on the mizbeach. All of these things are about sensitivity, meaning. Um, the Chazal say that the, the, the cut stones, um, the metal implements, that, that, that's a connection to, to murder, and the, the erva appearing on the, the, uh, the Mizbeach is a reference to Giloy Arayos, right? The Rav Hirsch actually points out that the three commandments at the end of the Parsha correspond to the big three. Shvi Chazdam, Giloy Arayos, and Avodah Zarah. Right? Don't make images, that's Avodah Zarah. Um, don't, don't, uh, don't cut the stones with metal implements, that's, that's Shvi Chazdam. And don't let your nakedness be seen on the, on the Mizbeach, so that's Giloy Arayos. These are the Gedarim on how to have a relationship with Hashem. And in a certain respect, the Mepharshim, like the Ramban, and I think Ibn Ezra says something similar, that this is, a, this is an insurance policy on our relationship with Hashem. After we've seen Hashem, we want to know, how can I possibly get close with Hashem? Says Moshe Rabbeinu, this is the way. But the point is, again, to understand that the divine revelation at Harsinai absolutely had to happen to give us a fighting chance. We now have that fighting chance. We just have to work with it. We've got to fly with it and do our very best. Now, I know this was a little bit of a longer Parsha panorama, uh, but hopefully we touched on all the very important points. I hope you enjoyed. And really, I want to take this opportunity right now just to mention that I really appreciate feedback 
and just um, you know, in terms of the content, but also if you have any questions, anything on the content that we've presented, if you want to see some of the sources or any or anything relating to any of the shiurim, please reach out to me at the database at gmail.com um, and to. Um, to just uh, give off any thoughts, any responses that you have, or if you're still wondering something, please feel free. Anyway, that takes us through the beginning of Kabbalah Satora. We're not finished. But now we understand that we are now getting back to the Gan Eden spot, the Gan Eden spot which will give us the opportunity to earn the ultimate good by now having the, the playing field equal, um, you know, leveled out and equaled out. Now, we, um, now with, the, with the equalizer at Har Sinai, we have that fighting chance to earn the ultimate good as Hashem's people, we have we are now reaching that 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 pinnacle once again, and this is really again that this is getting back to where mankind um, once once fell. We're reaching that point again, and when we become Hashem's people, then you know we can we can we can allow that shefa and bracha that Hashem wants to give us to pour out to the rest of the world, and we'll see where we go from here. Are we successful with that? Well, we'll have to find out. And if you already know what happens, well, let's try to figure out why that happened and how everything happened. But we have a few weeks until that. In the meantime, that was Parsha's Yisrael. We'll pick up next week by Hashem with Parsha's Mishpatim, a very heavy Parsha panorama coming for next week. But um, hopefully you'll enjoy it. In the meantime, thanks for joining us at the database. Have an absolutely wonderful Shabbos.